And good morning, Gary. Good evening, Jonathan. I'm back in Chicago. I'm not at a convention, and I'm rather enjoying it. <laughs> well, of course, for, for you continent-trotting North Americans, it's nice to be back at home. I mean, because, you know, there are hundreds of conventions for you to go to just at the drop of a hat, aren't there? Uh, I think, um, and I, I know that uh, Joe and Gay Haldeman go to as many conventions as anybody I can think of, and David Hartwell goes to a lot of conventions. And I'm pretty certain that uh, there's a convention a week you could go to somewhere. Uh, and I, if, if you got, if, if you want to spend all of your recreational money going to conventions, um, it is it is a way of seeing a lot of good friends. Yeah. Um, but there is, uh, I can also understand why podcasts like this one, uh, as, as, as Jeff Ford told us, uh, feel like being in a in a room with friends of yours. I listen to other podcasts for the same reason. When you can't really do that every weekend. Sure. Well, well, cer certainly that's the attraction for someone like me. I mean, I'm sitting here in now cold and rainy Perth uh, in the middle of winter, getting ready, I tell you, to waste two perfectly good weeks of winter to come to America for Worldcon. Ah, wasting weeks ah. of winter for more summer. But anyway, uh, and I do. I, I listen to um, the you know, podcast because I, you know, I get to America once a year, and that's the only time I'll get to sit in a room with the kind of friends that we have there. And you do get to miss it. And, and it's also nice to have a an ear against the door, I guess, and just sort of touch base again with everything. I, I was thinking, and this touches base with the fact that, I mean, you're just back from the, you know, the, the Locust Awards and the Locust Weekend, mm. that we talk often, or I talk often, we talk often about the calendar of the science fiction year. And more and more I, I think about it, the more and more I think that we keep getting it wrong. Wrong? Well, yeah, well, I'll tell you why. I used to think you had a, an annual calendar. This was you know, Charles's idea, I guess. You had the annual, annual year where you, know, you started at a certain time of the year. You went to the end of the, that period. During that time, you had the main body of conventions. You had an award season that started and finished, da-da-da-da. Now what I've come to think is there's just a brief hiatus at Christmas. That's all. Because the conventions run constantly. And the awards season runs constantly. I mean, when aren't we talking about a new batch of awards, for example? Or, you know, a new set of award winners and a new set of award this, that, or the other. I think one of the things that Charles was thinking about was his own personal calendar, which sure. basically was defined by the spring conventions, which were essentially the uh, International Conference on the Fantastic and the Nebulas, mm -hmm. and then various things through the summer, uh, ending with the late summer, always the Hugos and the uh, World Science Fiction Convention, and finally mm -hmm. capping everything off with World Fantasy, uh, which does make for a nice season. Uh, but that's only looking at the high-profile major awards, and there are awards now that uh, I can't even keep track of. I mean, I'm, oh, no. very great I'm very grateful to our friend Cheryl for keeping track of the awards. Oh, yes, uh, yeah. Mark uh, every year I see ones I haven't heard of before. Well, I think new, you know, new ones start regularly, I mean, which is a nice thing. Um, though it does actually, it does touch on something I was going to talk to you about. So uh, it's maybe a nice um, segue of sorts uh, into that, and that is that in this science fictional world that we live in, where there are, you know, a, an award a week, if 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 you're lucky, do we have a good grasp on what awards mean? I mean, I, I read people's reactions to award nomination lists and award uh, winners, and I feel like they've never been more closely scrutinized 
you know, than they are now. They're, they're, they're scrutinized for all sorts of things that it's quite reasonable to scrutinize them for, you know, gender balance, race, you know, racial, you know, the, the representation of people of color, um, all sorts of other things. Uh, and I, I hear sort of cries of outrage and cry, cries of despair and statements about how terrible things are. And I'm going like, aren't they just awards? I mean, really? I mean, is, is it sort of putting too much weight on them? I think uh, people... My sense is that people who receive awards probably um, don't put too much weight on them because they make you feel really good, and it's nice mm. to feel good. It's encouraging, and you feel validation. And, and people who work in a field which, whether or not it's as despised as it used to be, certainly we all grew up reading a, a literature that other people thought odd. Yeah. Um, and, and, you, and you know, uh, going back to uh, the beginnings of, Hugo Awards going back slightly before that to the International Fantasy Award, which was won by, I think, More Than Human and and, and Earth Abides, that part of this came away came about because of the recognition that these uh, writers and novels are never going to get awards from anybody else. They're not going to yeah. get book awards. They're not going to get Pulitzer Prizes. They're not going to get Booker Awards. Um, so to some extent, that was of kind of validation that you people can write really well and some of us want to recognize that even if most of us don't. Mm-hmm. I think that sense of validation, having won a couple of awards myself, is absolutely real. What yeah. it does, uh, what, what the good it does for the field uh, is it makes you want to do more of the same work. Okay. You can publish a book that sells an edition of a few hundred copies uh, and get an award for it and you think, well, I'm never making any money on this, but somebody thinks it's worth doing, so I'm going to do more of it. I can see that, and I, I agree with that, I think. But one of the responses that I hear is, uh, you know, like a, a new batch of award winners. I mean, let, let's take the Locus Award winners themselves, because the Locus Award win- winners were just announced, and congratulations to all of them. Um, so uh, the Fritz Leiber book that Charles and I edited uh, won for Best Collection, and someone said, is a 50-year-old collection of stories really representative of the best of the field in, to- in 2011? And, you know, I, I kind of stopped and I thought, is that really what it means? You know, are you putting a different weight on it than it... I mean, what it means to me is that it was the most popular bu- book amongst a bunch of readers, and they said that was the one they liked the best. And honestly, if you look at the voting by a quite close margin. Um, but, you know, you, you sit there kind of going, I'm not sure that's what it meant. I don't think it says that... You know, I, I don't think anyone thinks that Fritz Lieber's selected stories is representative of the best that the field is doing in 2011. Um, but I th- still think it's reasonable for it to be considered for a best collection. Um, well, I, you know. The book was published in 2011, but again, any collection of stories, if you look at it that way, yeah. if you have any, any single author collection, that can be stories published in 2011. Well, I, well yeah, yeah, but I mean, it, okay, go back two or three years when um, they published... When Pyre published Cyber Bad Days, the Ian MacDonald uh, book that collected his recent short stories, right? Right. Um, it was representative of some of the best of the field at that time because, uh, you know, the stories were all quite recent. I mean, the, the point was with the, with the Libra book, all of the stories were quite old. I mean, nothing was published before the mid-80s, I guess. Right. And most of it was much it was earlier than that. Uh, and their point was, is this really representative of the best of the field? And my point is, no, I don't think it is. Rep- well, okay, yes, it is representative of some of the best of the field. I just don't think it's representative of some of the best of the field in 2011, particularly. I just think, you're, but I also think you're bringing in, you know, the wrong, 
measure here somehow the wrong kind of response, you know. Um, when I see, I mean, without naming names, I mean, when Connie's book, Blackout and All Clear, won for the Locus mm. Awards and won for the Nebula, there are, in certain quarters, and I'm not disparaging, I just don't really get into the naming names especially, um, there was gnashing of teeth and kind of like, oh, welly, welly, what does it say about the field that this big bloated text can win and be representative of the best we have? And you're going... I'm I'm not sure that's what it means. Well, in the case of the Locus Awards, you're absolutely right. There's a voting process that goes on. There are factors that always intervene with very popular writers like Connie Wallace or Neil Gaiman that uh, that that have much to do, and maybe in some cases with the author as with the work. Uh, I don't think that necessarily disparages the work at all. No. I do think the idea that when you say this represents the best of the field. Um, that almost always has to be a controversial statement because mm. I don't necessarily think my idea of my idea of what the field is is the same as anyone else's. Well, that's true too. I think that's very true. I agree completely with that. So, so you know, Fritz Leiber represented a ma- the Fritz Leiber collection represented a major, major collection, a very important book that was published in 2011. Um, my favorite and, book for anthology, frankly, would have been the Wesleyan Anthology of Science Fiction, which yeah. came out I think sixth uh, eventually. Which had only had a couple of recent stories in it, but it was a very significant collection. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it probably uh, didn't get as much attention as what, what was it, Warriors that actually won. Yeah, Warriors. Uh, yeah, actually, I was really surprised by that result. I'll, I will be honest with you. Um, not the least because you you didn't hear much about Warriors during the year. It wasn't the book that got a lot of talk that I saw really. So when it did win, I was kind of like surprised. But but it was. If you go back and look at the figures, it was a whisker away from being Gardner's year's best, actually. Mm-hmm. So, you know. It, and that was the, according to the breakdown in the latest issue of Locust Magazine, now available for digital download at locustmag.com, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that was both touch and go, but it was also, that was very much a, a result that was reflected the views of, more of the Locust subscriber based than you know sort of non-local subscribers who voted whereas in something like best editor that the award was very much um influenced by non-subscriber votes so you know there's that different populations of voters as well well and uh, but the, the same thing is going to be true of the hugo awards they're going to be the attendees but they're going to be the people who are qualified to sure. vote from last year's convention so, well, it's so like, there's always yeah. the element but I, I, I guess my point is that if you actually look at them uh, an anthology was supposed to represent the best work, best work being done in 2011, then you're pretty much stuck with the best of the year anthologies. Because every other anthology is going to have some historical aspect to it. True. I mean, I, I, I think that is true, yes. I mean, I would also say that sort of when the Hugo Awards are announced in August, and there will be a t- the similar gnashing of teeth, people say, well, whatever, whatever wins, they'll say, is this really the best of the field? Mm-hmm. And you're going, no, it's what it's the best of it's it's what the nine hundred odd people who voted voted on for completely different reasons or for a, an array of reasons. Right. Some people were um, carefully studying the field and trying to vote for what they thought was best. Some people were voting for what they liked the most. Some people were voting for their favorite authors. And all of those things were legitimate and fair enough, in my opinion. You know, that's what happens in a popularly voted thing. And somebody will sit there and go, Well, the wrong book won. Um I've often sat there over the years and thought the wrong book won, but I haven't sort of gnashed my teeth and wailed. I kind of just go, well, that's just how it goes. And no one remembers next year anyway. 
Um, by and large, no. I mean, by and large, I've been told that the Hugos are the only award that actually makes a, a difference in terms of future sales of the book, and it might very well be true. I think the Edgar Award does as well. Mm. Less so nebulous in world fantasy and that sort of thing. But by and large, it's still um, a, a, a limited number of people making a limited decision on on very, very different uh, sets of criteria. I look at people's blogs, for example, mm. and, and, and websites and, and, uh, and, 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 and podcasts, where there are a lot of people who I respect a lot, who are very conscientious, and I have to confess I'm not necessarily one of them, who will assiduously read everything. They do exactly what the Hugo uh, uh, administrators tell you you should do. These yeah. things are available online. Read everything and make a reasoned judgment. Mm -hmm. Does that really happen with the majority of voters in any kind of an election? <laughs> I would be surprised. I wouldn't expect it of people. I mean, yes, I sort of try to do it myself. I do. But I kind of feel like I've got a slightly different perspective. And I'd, I'd expect you to make a reasonable stab at it when you're voting. And I, But I'd also expect you to have a certain amount of ambient background knowledge anyway. Um, but I remember what you know, actually, I've always been like that. But I know people who um, have read four books this year and they vote for the one they like the most. The, the most. Well, and who are we to say that's wrong? Um, and who are we to say that a set of award results that we don't think reflect the best of the field actually is a statement about the health of the field? Because that I think is the the, the disconnect. You know, if you get a bunch of anomalous award results in a particular year you know like let's say this year personally i think the best science fiction novel i read all year was the dervish house by ian mcdonald i think that's the one that should win all the awards personally yeah now it's not going to win all the awards it might win one or two or three but it may, you know, may not win any i don't know but at the end of the year it will, it will at the end of it when you look back in 2010 it'll still be a great year that had the dervish house in it it just may be that when the awards were presented it didn't take home the gong and the novel will survive uh, yeah, yeah. That, that, that that dissing, if you want to put it that yeah. way. Uh, there's also the question of what, what if you get somebody, because this comes up, I've had people ask me about this, and I'm sure you have too, should I vote for the Locus Awards if I haven't read enough, should I vote for the Hugo oh, Awards? Yeah. Let's say you've read five novels during the year, yeah. and that, let's say you've read 20 novels during the year, and you really like five of them, and only one of those five shows up on a ballot. Does that mean that... Uh, you should read the other ones on the ballot? Or does that mean you should follow your own judgment if you think four others should have been on the ballot that weren't? Um, what I tend to do is I, in each category, I tend to know, if not all of the books, at least when you get to short stories and novellas, you know that a lot better than I do. Sure. I get down to two or three, there's almost always one or two that I really like. And to be honest, what I'll do is I'll look at the others. I may not read them, but I'm, I'm looking to see, is this going to be better than the one I really like? Mm -hmm. And I end up, uh, in some cases, to be honest, not very many, uh, thinking, yeah, I, 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 this is really stunning. This is a story I hadn't read before, and uh, it surprised me in, in ways I didn't expect. But by and large, uh, I'm thinking that there's a reason why I haven't read some of these other stories, and uh, is, is that, um, and that there's, you know, there's a reason why I like other stories or novels better than the ones that are even nominated. Yeah. So, so it's not as though... The, the, the problem is not the final vote. The problem is uh, the nomination list, which is also, I realize, the result of a vote, or in the case of World Fantasy, it's partly a vote. Um, and that nomination list is going to be skewed as much as the final result is. Yep. Uh, there are years, I'm sure if we go back, in which we will find uh, that the best 
most important science fiction story or novel of the year, wasn't even nominated for a major award at the time. Certainly. Uh, and in fact, I, I read on my favorite blog post series anywhere in on the internet right now, Joe Walton's co you know, coverage of the you know, review of the Hugo Awards year by year that happens on Tor.com. There's a lot of quite interesting commentary uh, on those posts where people talk about the other books of the year that came, or stories of the year that were overlooked and how could you know when you look back how could it possibly be that such and such a book didn't get nominated or whatever else and it does happen. Um, I'm just not sure it says as much about the state of the field that as people sort of say it does. And I also realize that one of the things that happens is when you when you sit read a lot of the response to award results, there's a, a lot of hyperbole and energy used in expressing those points of view. You know, so it'll be you know, it'll be wrong that such and such won. It'll be a terrible slight against the field. And you're going, you know, the field's looking fine. The field is looking good. I don't really get it, but it's hyperbole. Well, and, and, and by and large, uh, if you look at any kind of uh, literary history, if you go back and you know, look at Nobel prizes for that matter, mm -hmm. it has not only does it not only do the Nobel prizes, National Book Awards, Booker Awards. Uh, uh, what's is this, what's a national literary award in Australia? Is there something like a Booker there? Uh, there's a couple of things. There are Premier's Awards. There's the Miles Franklin Award. A bunch of things. Yeah, and uh, you you look at those and you find first of all, no book was destroyed by not winning an award. Yeah. No book was disappeared, and many of the books that uh, won awards did disappear. Uh, so so by and large, the only thing that really determines a, a canon or a classic is. Um, how often it gets reprinted and how many people get exposed to it in some way. Yeah, I think, so. I think that's probably about right. So, yeah. And I will say, I mean, I'm, I'm looking at, just to, just to interject for a second and be terrible, a lot of the awards you don't pay attention to anyway. I'm looking at the Science Fiction Awards website as we speak, Gary. And you'll notice, uh -huh. you'll notice I'm, I'm using an iPad because you can't hear the the, uh, key, the keys clicking away in the background. As oh, you you're, really, you're, you're, you're tricking me because I could always tell when you were doing this by clicking before I'm <laughs> No, you see, that was just me looking to improve the audio quality of our podcast by not adding additional background noise. But there are awards that I'm not f familiar with. I mean, the Daryl Awards are not a set of awards that I'm familiar with, to, in, in truth. I don't think I've heard of the ESFS Awards or mm -hmm. the Fountain Awards or, well, yeah, a couple of others. The, the Komatsu Sakyo Award, I don't know that one. I've heard of the Lord Ruthven Awards, but I'm not sure what they're for. Are you? Do you have any idea? A uh, vampire literature. Really? Actually, of course. Given no, no, no. At the National Conference on the Fantastic, the Lord Ribbon Society are people who basically, I, I, if I understand this correctly, I think the president is uh, uh, actually a friend of mine, Stacey Haynes, and I think it has to do with the best representation of revenant literature, which I think is what they call vampire literature now. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I mean, just, just now, I mean, in the current batch of awards that they're covering, the Shirley Jackson Award nominees, which I thought had come out earlier, but I guess mustn't have. The Shirley Jackson Award nominees have come out. Uh -huh. I, I knew about it. There's the, the, the Zajdel Awards, which are which come out of Poland that I wasn't familiar with. The Sun Bursts out of Canada, which I do know. The Sky Awards out of um, China, which I've never heard of before. And others. British Fantasy Awards. Some good stuff on that. Graham Joyce's book's up for the, the British Fantasy Awards. Anyway. Suffice it to say, when it comes to awards, I think it's too much hyperbole, but I really like them anyway. And I don't take the award, you know, the, the, I take neither the winners nor the lo losers too seriously. I just think it's a lot of fun and I enjoy it. So, Well, as I say, what it does, 
uh, in the short term, probably is very useful in terms of encouraging people to keep on with their work. I know, I remember talking to Mary Rickard at the World Fantasy Awards. She mm-hmm. had this unusual, it's not a trifecta, but it's whatever winning two horse races is. Um, one of our racing listeners will correct me on that. But I remember she won for novella and for collection in the same year. Mm-hmm. And she felt herself very modestly to be uh, an anomaly. Uh, she didn't realize people were reading her stuff, taking it that seriously. She certainly was not making a lot of money on it with two sure, collections of Griffin and selling stories to um, fantasy and science fiction. And it made her feel like, I must be doing something right. Yeah. And I don't know I, I, I don't know her well enough. I don't know any other particular writer well enough to think that I was really, you know, I would have given this up if this hadn't happened. But I suspect there are cases where that's the case, uh, where in, in, indeed if you're writing really brilliant, non-necess- not necessarily commercial fiction, that awards like this are a way of telling you that, look, we, we love what you do, we respect what you do, we want to see more of it, even if you're not going to get rich doing this. Hmm. True. Well, anyway, Locus Awards, they can find the uh, the winners on at locusmag.com, I guess, and um, congratulations to all our friends, yeah. and yeah. And well, I think everybody, uh, everybody could uh, make a good case for every one of these novels, um, winning at the Locus Awards, it was an interesting. Uh, I, I don't think I'm giving away anything, any secrets here, because during the Locus Award presentation, those mm. who were uh, watching the live blog feed, uh, the best uh, science fiction novel award, all the awards had been uh, introduced uh, and announced by Connie Willis, except for the last one when Liza mm-hmm. took over, which Connie, I think, believed absolutely meant that. She was being saved the embarrassment of having announced publicly that she had lost an award she was for. Yeah. Uh, in fact, of course, it was exactly the reverse. <laughs> but uh, there was, uh, you know, the, 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 when I talked to writers who, uh, and you and I have been in this position also, yeah. who sometimes expect nothing to happen and are absolutely stunned by an award. Yeah. It it's a wonderful feeling. It is. Um, I mean, I, I can speak to that myself. I mean, sitting there in the audience. Uh, at World Fantasy last year, mm-hmm. when uh, I was very fortunate and grateful to win uh, the, the uh, Best Professional Achievement Award, that was a real surprise. I was not anticipating that. And that felt really good, frankly. It feels really nice. Well, and it, it, to some extent, it is, a, as I say, it's a validation. It's, mm, it's, sure. it's a, an award for, for, for what you're doing in general. And I think that's one of the things that goes on with the awards. And uh, there's there's a there's a school of thought that says enormously popular writers like uh, well let's okay let's say uh, Neil Gaiman winning uh, what a couple of these awards he did indeed yeah and uh, and there's no doubt in everybody's mind including and Neil's perfectly aware of this that he's an immensely popular figure he's an immensely charismatic figure he's written uh, a major body of work at a rate reasonably young age mm. uh, and. What does he need validation for is one question. And the other question is, the, the answer to that partly is, uh, he wants to know that people who take this sort of thing seriously uh, respect his work. Sure. Uh, and there's nothing, I think, wrong with that at all. No, I mean, not at all. Chosen uh, any of these winners, uh, I don't think I would begrudge any of, whether I would have chosen the specific titles that won this year, I wouldn't begrudge any of the specific authors because, by and large, they all deserve that recognition. Oh, sure. And look, I might personally have picked different results in any individual category, uh, mm-hmm. but you're right. I'm, 
you know, I look at them, I, I understand, put it this way, so the, here, here's the test that I try to apply, right, and it doesn't always hold true for anybody else. When I look at a winner, I want to be able to understand why it won. It, I don't need to yeah. agree with it, but I need to understand it. Um, I can understand all of the winners on the Locus Awards list. Uh, I don't look at anything and go, what happened there? You know, uh, there's nothing so there's nothing egregiously from less fi- left field. There's nothing te- undeserving. Um, yes, this particular reader sitting in this particular chair might have made a different choice, but you know that's how that goes. I mean, it's not it's not a you know, if, if I want an award that reflects my taste, what I need to do is go run one, and the world doesn't need another set of awards. It doesn't need another set of awards, and it doesn't really need. One of the things that happens with movies and television, and in the States here we have something called the People's Choice Awards, oh, yeah. which I don't even know how it happens. I think you go online, millions of votes come in, yep. and the results are predictable. The results are that you're going to get, you know, you're going to get, I don't know, Katy Perry as Entertainer of the Year yep. or whatever, which is perfectly fine because that represents a certain way of thinking. The Locus Awards, in one way of thinking, are the closest to that that the science fiction field has. But yeah. they're not, because you have to be aware of Locus, and you have to be aware of the Locus Awards in order to do that. Um, I have no doubt that if, uh, I, I, I have some doubts, but my guess is if you put a, um, a, a fantastic literature awards as an open voting thing on the Internet and just ask everybody in the world to vote for them, that, uh, you know, we would have been giving awards to nothing but Twilight novels and Harry <laughs> Potter novels in the last ten years. Probably so, yes. Yes, I think that's probably so. So... I don't know. Anyway. Anyway, yes. Enough about awards, Gary. I just was reacting because I read stuff on Twitter where people say, it's the end of the world. This book won another you know, thing. It must be, you know, what does it say about the field? It must be the end of all times. And you're going, no, it's not. And you know it's, no, it's not. Let's all be sensible. So that's all that was about. So tell me, in amongst all this flying around and consuming presumably prodigious quantities of red wine with your friends in foreign cities, you've been doing any reading, Gary? What I've been reading, interestingly enough, is because this is when I'm flying around and spending time in hotel rooms, I'm always thinking that Jonathan is waiting for me to turn in a column. <laughs> I'm and, looking at it now. Uh, there are a couple of interesting things. I mean, the, 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 the one I read while I was actually at the convention uh, is a forthcoming novel by Lobby Titter called Osama, mm-hmm. uh, which made me think of an interesting thing, because think about the title without knowing what the novel is about at all, because I didn't. And my yeah. first thought on the title was, Okay, this is one of those classic examples in science fiction history where the timing is just absolutely wrong. <laughs> you okay. Published a novel about Osama after he's history. Mm. Uh, remember when Norman Spinrad published, I think it was Russian Spring. Yeah. Uh, just, and oh. it, it, was, it was an interesting near future novel about Russia. Good novel. I liked it a lot. A good novel. It's actually a very good novel. Yeah. Uh, but it happened at the time when the Soviet Union essentially disappeared. Yeah. And in terms of its. Uh, and, and this was this was not just a good novel. It was what looked at the time to be a breakout novel. This was mm. going to be a dream consideration. This was going to be one of those novels that crossed the line between good near future science fiction and mainstream bestseller. Yep, very and much. To large to a large extent, the response was, "Eh, we don't need to read that now. It's over." Yeah, I remember. And I, in fact, I remember it, being sad because I actually particularly liked that book. It was. It was, a, it, was, it was one of the tragedies of science fiction. Norman Spinrad is a terrific writer, and this was going to be the novel that, that made his name. Yeah. Um, and it just came out at the wrong time, I think. Yeah. Um, 
So uh, without giving away too much of what I might say in the review, it turns out Osama is not at all what I thought it was going to be. Yeah. Uh, it's a hard-boiled detective mystery, uh, and I, it still works. Yeah. Uh, you know, you don't have to be coy about your reviews, Gary. I said, you know, I absolutely have to because I want people to buy the magazine and read them. <laughs> I'm not going to give previews here. So, it, it, it turns out to be a, a, a de detective procedural, very much written in a noir tradition, a lot of allusions to Raymond Chandler and Dashiell Hammond. Yeah. Um, and the key to it, I, I, shall I give away the key conceit of the novel? Because it's not a spoiler. It occurs in the Sure, give away the, the, key, the key conceit. And then, in a first, give us a, a podcast review vote, whether it's one pipe up or one pipe down. I am never in my life going to do something. <laughs> At gunpoint, on a stage, in a convention, I am not going to do thumbs up, thumb down. I'm never going to do stars. Because even when I look at these movie reviews, what, what's the difference between two and a half and three stars? I don't know. I've never understood that. Uh, it's, uh. It's, it's, it's a very interesting novel. The conceit behind it is that this private detective is hired to track down the author of a series of thriller novels, yep. which feature a renegade terrorist named Osama bin Laden, colon, vigilante. Oh, yep. It's interesting, intriguing, isn't it? It is, it is. What he does with that is, um, as, as a way of promoting the novel, for people who think this is a novel which is outdated before it comes out, no, it's not. It has really a lot to do with the mythology of Osama bin Laden. It has nothing to do with... Uh, um, with whether or not he's actually been assassinated. Yeah, okay. Or, 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 or executed, however you want to put it. Now, this is going to be available um, from PS Publishing, isn't it? This is PS, coming out in, yep. I believe, September. I'm not okay. sure. Okay, yep. Lavi Titter is a, is a writer who interests me because uh, the first... The short fiction, as you know, is is, is stunning, a, a lot of it. Mm -hmm. um, the first two novels seem to me to be fine cyberpunk... Not cyberpunk, steampunk kind of things... Yeah, but but not nearly as original as this one is. Okay. Um, this does, this should get some attention. The other thing which I started reading, um, and I'm not finished with, but it's, it's just stunning me in all kinds of ways, is um, another book which is not widely available. I think it'll be widely available, which is the um, uh, Essential Lucy Sussex. The title okay. is Matilda did, did Such Dreadful Things, which is being published by an Australian publisher, but I believe being distributed both in the States and the UK. Am I correct? Uh, I, it, well, hang on, okay. Maybe. I, the, the truth of it is, it's actually a, be, being published here in Perth. Okay. Uh, uh, by Russell Forrest, Ticonderoga Publications. Mm -hmm. And I know it's available online. I don't know about the actual physical distribution of the book. Uh, okay. And I literally, I don't know, but you can, you can certainly get it from good online retailers and from ticonderogapublications.com, I think. Uh, so, yeah. So, so you think that you, this is surprising you and, and, and delighting well, you and all that? My, my, my experience of Lucy Sussex is reading a lot of her stories in Year's Best anthologies. Okay. And uh, including, uh, and, and, and in theme anthologies and that sort of thing. Uh, there are some things that always interest me. Uh, there's a story called Merlicine, which is a Cajun, mm. uh, yep. uh, it's, 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 it's the uh, Snake Lady Meliocene yep. Yeah, from, from the Ellen Kushner Delia Sherman anthology from all that time about music or something. Yeah, uh, Horms Elfland, I think it was called. Yeah, um, and I, I, I'd read it because I think after that anthology, it may have shown up in the year's best or two. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things that fascinates me about uh, writers from any one country who can do another nation well 
uh, is that she's doing Cajun dialect. She's doing New Orleans kind of rural, not, not even New Orleans, rural Cajun dialect from Louisiana, getting the rhythms of it right, getting the uh, uh, descriptions right. I don't know if she's ever spent any time there at all. But when I see a writer uh, do that with another, another country, I think Tim Powers could do that very well with Victorian London. Yeah. Um, I think uh, John Grimwood did a really good job of, of, of dealing with San Francisco. And I always wonder, how do you do that? How does somebody from a completely different culture visit someplace? Jeff Ryman, yeah. uh, when he was, uh, just absolutely nailed the part of southeastern Kansas that I actually know about because I have been there. Mm-hmm. So, so that, I think, is a talent that makes me admire a writer a great deal, uh, wherever they get that from. But the other thing that impresses me about the collection is the variety of her work. Mm. And... The kind of thing which always I admit to being a sucker for, which is science fiction about other science fiction, or science fiction that deals with uh, the way we re- sure. read and receive science fiction. Like, like we talked about Joe Walton's novel at great length. She has a story, for example, in which Catherine, it's called Kay and Phil. Yep, great story. Catherine Burdekin from, from the 1930s, the author of Swastika Night under the name of Marie Constantine, somehow shows up as a kind of ghost presence in Philip K. Dick's uh, house while he's writing. The Man in the High Castle. Uh, of course it never happened, but it's, it's a very, very clever work of literary criticism, literary uh, uh, acknowledgement, I guess, uh, in the form of a, of a kind of neat story. Um, and there's another one in which, which is based on a group of novels I know nothing about. Apparently there, was a number of, uh, there were a number of 19th century feminist utopias written in Australia. Yes. Um, so this is one of the things that came across that surprised me, simply because I hadn't seen it in her fiction earlier, that she seems to know a lot about Australian literary history. She knows Very a much. lot about the prehistory of science fiction. She knows a lot about feminist history. And she can embody this in stories in ways that absolutely don't keep the stories from being compelling. Yeah. So I'm finding her absolutely del- delightful and somebody that um, I think probably needs to be more widely known than, than she is. I mean, she's... I'm thinking of her, even though the writing is not similar, I'm beginning to think of her as the Australian Gwyneth Jones. Wow. That's a big call. Well, it, well, it is. I mean, but I'm saying that partly from an American perspective. These are sure. two very major writers who have a clear historical sense of the genre, who are clearly feminist writers, who are clearly are writing in a variety of genres, and who have their finger on all kinds of popular culture things, who in the States are still not the major figures that they probably should be. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, I think, uh, you know, uh, 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 Timmy Duchamp at Aqueduct has done a yep. lot to, to bring uh, Gwyneth Jones to the attention of American she readers, has. and I, I, I hope that this book will do the same thing for, for Lucy Sussex. Excellent. So, that, that's interesting. I, mean, I, I guess it, it's always interesting to hear a perspective on someone like Lucy, because whilst I don't know her personally very well, I do know her personally, and mm-hmm. I have been reading her since I first encountered Australian science fiction. I read her, I encountered her first collection, I've got a copy of it here in the house somewhere uh my lady tongue and other tales which mm-hmm. i remember being quite enchanted by at the time uh and along you know, over the years there's been this sort of regular stream not not not, a, not an enormous body of work but a, a quite a significant body of work and in fact i must admit my first initial reaction to um seeing the manuscript for uh the the, yeah, the best of lucy sussex was that it looked enormous i thought really is there really that much Lucy Sussex stuff that is of enormous interest and that deserves to be in a best of. And it's interesting to get a 
perspective from someone who's not familiar with the body of work saying, well, actually, yes, it is. Uh, it, it is actually a, a good thing and a service to the field to have, have this, you know, have this book like this produced. So yeah, it's good. There are a couple of books. Oh, you edited one of them. There was the best Australian science fiction, which I think I read before you and I ever met. Yeah, would have um, done. Yeah. And there were, but there were a couple of other anthologies. There was one north. Uh, there was one that. Uh, hmm. Um, Centaurus, one that Damien and um, uh, yes, Hartwell did. The, the one that Damien and Hartwell did. Uh, there was Jack Dan's. Uh, a uh, couple of those, gun. yeah. And so it seemed, it seemed to me that it seemed that Lucy Sussex showed up in all these. She does. And that was one of the things that at the time was very tantalizing. I remember when I was, I was reviewing for Locus at the time, I said there's a real renaissance going on in Australian science fiction, which probably in retrospect was naive because by the time things show up in anthologies, <laughs> the renaissance is either over or has been going on for quite a while. Pretty much. Uh, I think I may have first encountered Terry Dowling in one of those anthologies. Possibly so, even though Terry's writing actually goes back before Lucy's by some years. Uh, oh, I, I, it's, one of those, it's one of those secret things. I mean, Terry goes back to 1977, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, believe it or not, weirdly, his, his short fiction and stuff is almost cont- contemporaneous with uh, George Turner's. I mean, Turn- Turner was writing novels earlier, but I seem to recall really? short fiction was around the same time. Yeah, Tur- Turner was writing short fiction back in the 60- no, novels back in the 60s, but I'm pretty sure that the short fiction was around the same time. He only wrote short fiction later in his career, mostly, is my recollection. I'd have to go back and look at it, but that's, that, that's my recollection. So, yeah. One of the things that's interesting is when you start thinking about uh, writers that you're aware of, well, in some way or another, you're aware of their age. Now, my guess, without knowing this, is that George Turner was somewhat... Uh, older than Terry Dowling. Oh, good deal older. I mean, Terry's just in his 60s now, and George was, what, in his 70s or 80s when he died, and he died a good number of years ago, you know, so, yeah, there's a considerable age difference. But George, you know, I mean, I turned to the field. Although George had a long personal history with the field, he only started writing that it later in, it, in his life is my recollection. I need to look at his biography again. But, I mean, uh, his first, well, he originally wrote mainstream fiction, and in fact, won the Miles Franklin Award for a mainstream novel. A book called, was it The Cupboard Under the Stairs? Something like that. So yeah, mm-hmm. um, his, his, his history, his bibliography is not exactly what you might immediately have expected either. So yeah. Well, I was thinking about that when Terry Bisson in last week's podcast mentioned that he started reading, started writing fairly late. Mm. Um, and in his 40s, came to the field. He had been in the field for a long time, had known a lot about it, but he hadn't... Yep really tried it and there's a there's always a sense of associating a writer's birth and death dates with the era in which they wrote and that's that's not always accurate oh um, no not at all i mean for, uh, my, my my you know one of my best friends in the field of course was philip jose farmer mm-hmm. and he was let me think he was nearly 40 before he started publishing stories yeah uh, see i didn't realize that either i never as you say i never actually added it up um i never stopped and thought about it um See, I mean, what? Well, see, Turner was born what 1916, you know, wow. whereas Terry would have been born in what 1950 something, late 1940s, early 1950s, and I mean, mm-hmm. and I mean, died 14 or 15 years ago. So, but yeah, all this. Well, anyway, yeah. This is my point. At least before the era of internet, where you could check things up, and I, I don't know if people do what I do, but I, if I come across a writer I've never heard of, I, I just immediately Google that person and find mm-hmm. out what I can. But before you could do that, all these names would come at you at the same time. We would get, uh, you know, we would get a, a, the the, uh, the Hartwell anthology we, mm-hmm. or, or the Canadian anthology, Northern Stars, and you just see all these names and you think, okay, they're all sort of of a piece, and you're 
you don't get a sense of the way the history of the field has developed in another country until no. you begin more and more of it. Yes. And, and of course, there's always that sort of thing. You try and work out who influenced whom. And, of course, in a, if you're in the dominant market, which if you're in the, the U.S. or the U.K. in science fiction, you pretty much are, you, mm. you don't get that feel for how how much was somebody influenced by you know, the, the major works of the field that came into their, their markets and how much, much by other things. I mean, uh, it's very hard to know, frankly, you know. Well, it's also very hard to trace what an influence is. When you get mm. a writer who's well-established in the field, and by and large, as you and I both know, most of the successful writers we know in the field don't spend a lot of time reading within the field. Yeah. Um, they read nonfiction. There was, a, there, was a, there was a news item in the uh, New York Times this week that Philip Roth has announced he hasn't read fiction in years. Yeah. And that didn't surprise me at all. <laughs> um, people like to read biographies and so forth. Every once in a while, a writer will come along, and I know two major writers who probably I shouldn't name, who have told me that when they started reading Kelly Link, they felt for the first time in years they were being influenced by somebody. Yeah. Which is an enormous compliment to Kelly because it's very difficult to come in and, um, and, and shape somebody's fiction or give them ideas that, yeah. uh, that they had before. We tend to think of influence as being, as being what you read when you were a teenager. True. That's very true. If you go back to the best storytellers in science fiction, I, here, here's an example. We talked about Joseph Conrad on an earlier podcast. Yeah. Uh, but when I talk to any number of writers uh, as as a major influence from their childhood, which became a major influence in their adulthood, the name uh, Robert Louis Stevenson comes up again. I can believe that, yeah. Because he wrote really gripping adventure stories. He wrote beautiful prose. He knew how to do multiple points of view and things like uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And he was something that almost everybody read. And he turns out to be one of the writers that stick with you. When you grow up and you go back and look at Stevenson, you realize, yeah, he was really, really good. (laughs) Yes. Well, and, and those the, the the basic stories that they created never went away. I mean, just as the, just the same way that the, the basic stories that say Dumas created never never go away. Mm-hmm. You know, they they come back. You know, sort of they they echo back again and again and again. So, well, and another more somewhat more recent writer, if you want to go into the twentieth century, which clearly is frankly all over um, the um, uh, Lobby Titter novel I mentioned is Raymond Chandler. Yeah, you, you cannot write hard-boiled noir fiction now without echoing or responding to, in some way, Raymond Chandler. You can you can do a little bit of Hammett off to the side, but by and large, Chandler is <laughs> very true. I think that's very true. Uh, in fact, Chandler is probably one of those influences on the field that doesn't get discussed quite enough. I mean, uh, at times it seems obvious, but it's only in the most obvious cases it, it gets referenced. Sorry. Well, one of the things that Chandler did, I think, was invent a mode of writing which was applicable to any number of genres. So once you've got a kind of hard-boiled noir sensibility, you can do that in heroic fantasy, you can do that in uh, cyberpunk, you can yep. do that in uh, space opera, you can, you can just apply that, uh, that tone and that attitude to almost any kind of fiction you want to write. Yes, very and much so. a lot of writers have done that. It, 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 it's amazing how many writers have done one or another hard-boiled stories, just, I guess, because they're really fun to do very much. I think that's very true. I had a reason for touching on this question, Gary, because I was going to fit a segue in. Are you ready for another segue? This is I, a, a, pa- a patented Crude Street podcast segue. You know, it's smooth. It's not, no one will notice after the fact that we did this. It's just like a real segue, meaning the, you have the, you have the, you have the motorized 
wheelie devices called Segways in yeah, Australia. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Where the creator was we, riding one over a cliff when he died, that one, yeah. Yeah, it's not, not a good advertisement. We have them all over. <laughs> but, so the, but the point about it, it's a double meaning, isn't it? Because you just yes. lean in one direction and you go in that direction. Exactly. So, segue, joining up or falling over a cliff and dying, whichever you like. We, we, we may be about to fall over a cliff and die. My segue was this. You're talking about the, uh, having read the, the Tidhar novel and the, reading the, the Sussex collection. And it, it makes me wonder about how we feel about the year. The year is going. I mean, Amazon have just whacked up their uh, best of 2011 so far lists. We're, you mm-hmm. know, we're halfway through the year. And in theory... You know, savants of the field like you and I, Gary, are read even further into the future. So the question is, 2011, how are we going? I think it's a good year. Um, I would not have said this at the same time last year. And a good year does not mean that every novel that comes out is really good. We don't have – I've not seen anything like a Dervish House this year, for example. Mm, Uh, No, not yet. uh, Among others is very strong – one of the things that's hard for you and me to think about is we're thinking, yeah, you're right, we're thinking about September, October, December now. Mm. Um, and books that came out in January and February are the ones that uh, that are lasting, and I think that the, that's one of them. I like the idea of uh, a good year is one for me that brings authors to prominence, not necessarily with a particularly good novel, but the Lucy Sussex collection is an important sure. collection. Yeah. We've got this year, we've got a very important collection coming out from Caitlin Kernan. There's yep. another writer who probably has not received the recognition that she deserves. Very much so. Uh, uh, we've got, I, I don't know, six or seventh volume of, of, of Robert Silverberg's best six, yeah. story. But, but we're getting into a period where they're really, really some of his best stories. Mm. Uh, and uh, I have, I got it in the mail and I have not read it, but I've got the, the, the uh, George Martin, the Dance with Dragons, over a thousand pages, which I'm sure is absolutely excellent. You're going to make all the fans cry and tell them you're not going to read it, are you? I'm not going to read it. Oh, fan, oh those George Martin fans. Sorry. Sorry. Okay, but Sorry. here's the thing. I, I have no... I've I, 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 I read the first book in the series. I, it, I thought it was brilliant. I watched the TV series. Um, I haven't finished watching that yet. I'm several episodes behind on that. Mm-hmm. But I have no doubt it's going to deliver on what it, uh, what it says it's going to do. And the main thing about that is it'll cause some of the George Martin fans to leave him alone for a while maybe (laughs) (laughs) there's that yep what do you think are the um striking books that you've seen this year oh boy well i mean it did start i mean it's it's repetitive for me to say it start did start with among others which i really loved yeah um and was the the best of the early books that i read um i must admit i hit a bit of a patch where i went looking for comfort reading and i went looking for comfort reading because i guess i was overwhelmed by everything else and by partly coincidence, partly design, I did read two of the other books that are on the Amazon top ten. And for me, they do uh-huh. sit in somewhat in the comfort reading ter- uh, territory. There's uh, Daniel Abraham's The Dragon's Path, which is the first volume in a new epic fantasy series. Mm-hmm. And probably a bit like the other book he has out this year, it's a little bit baggy in places. It could do with being trimmed up around the, around, um, around the midriff. However, it's mm. really enjoyable and immersive. I didn't, I didn't read his earlier series, which everybody said was brilliant and you know, reimagined the field and did it great was. things. But this was a lot of fun. And then I read Leviathan Wakes, the book that he's written with Ty Frank, uh, under the name James Corey. Mm. And for the part of me that is an old sci-fi guy who liked stories set in space, 
I did like it a lot. I mean, Russell points out quite rightly that it's a saggy, it too is a little bit saggy and baggy in places, but it's a lot of fun. It's a, it is really a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it a great deal. So that, that those were were two of the books. There's there's, there's been others. I mean, I, I, when people ask me these questions, I find myself sitting in my office sort of casting my eye around because it's so untidy now. I don't have my typical 2011 shelf anymore. So I have to look around at the books and go, oh my god, how did I forget Dancing with with Bears by Michael Swanwick, which I really enjoyed. Or well, well that's yeah. When you, know, you try to think of these things without looking around, uh, I was just calling up uh, uh, my list of reviews I published this year, and yeah. I, we, neither of us have mentioned Embassy Town yet. No, well, I was I was waiting for you to mention it because, um, oh. you know, you were the one who reviewed it for the magazine. Well, and the thing is. Embassy Town, and it's funny, I, I had this reaction to it, and I've talked to a number of people who've had the same reaction to it. It's it's not that easy to get into. There's a fair amount of yeah. background building and that sort of thing. But it's uh, what I consider uh, an intellectual science fiction novel that deals a lot with issues of, of, of colonialism and language. Um, it's It turns out to be fairly brilliant in the end. Mm-hmm. So every once in a while you read a book and you review it, and you and, and in reviewing it you have to point out uh, what's going to work and what's going to be problematical for a first-time reader, and then maybe a couple of months after you've published the review, you think, well, no, that was really pretty good. That was really yeah, a more yeah. challenging novel. To be honest, it's a far more challenging novel than Crockham, mm. um, and, and a more challenging novel than City in the City, for that matter. But you see, to, to me, that says that it's arguably less, well, first of all, marginally less likely to end up on all the awards lists next year because difficult books don't. And also, and I've wondered about this, I haven't. I was going to mention it earlier on when you said this, um, I'm not sure whether it's going to end up being the Dervish House of 2011. I, maybe too early to say that. I mean, what I've got yeah. in terms of novels to read, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's not going to disappoint uh, uh, China medieval readers, I don't think at all. No. Uh, but is it, going, is, 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 it, it, it becomes a page turner at some point in it. Yeah. Um, uh, the, but there, the problem I have with trying to assess the year is if you ask me to assess the year in terms of first novels, it's going to look different from just good writing. I mean, one of the most beautifully written novels I've seen this year was the new Graham Joyce novel. Mm-hmm. Um, Which actually came out last year. It t- technically came out last year? Not even technically. It actually came out next last year. It came out last year in the UK from Golan's. It's just been okay, reprinted so in the, the States. The American edition was this year then. Yep, yep. There was, um, I'm just uh, scrolling down now, things that I think are going to last. One of the interesting first novels we talked about last week about how um, many first novels Nightshade is doing. Sure. The one called Soft, Soft Apocalypse by Will McIntosh, I think, uh, deserves some attention. Um, story collections, here's one of the other awkward things. The Margot Lanigan story collection we're gonna, is going to get a lot of attention. Yellowcake is going to get a lot of attention next year when it appears in the UK and the US. Yep. But it's but not actually right, being talked about right now, is it? Uh, yeah, it should be talked about right now. But the point is, a lot of people can't get a hold of a copy of it, and that's well, going. Is, to be- is that is that because it's impossible to order online? I've never tried. Um, you you, you can do it. I mean, it works. People in Australia do it to get American books all the time. Uh, Americans don't have that kind of energy, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> so if it's not on Amazon.com, it doesn't exist. I, I probably I don't know. I mean, I remember uh, Margot uh, tweeted me that that the I think they said both the uh, UK and American editions were due in, in 2012. Yeah. Um, which uh, strikes me that probably it's very difficult to get for uh, for Brits and Americans right now. 
Uh, we mentioned Dancing with Bears, which is certainly mm-hmm. uh, the Swanwick, the, certainly is the darker and surplus novel that people have been working yep. on. Uh, I like Daryl Gregory's novels, Raising Stony Mayhall, which is which I would never have read if it hadn't been Daryl Gregory because it's a zombie novel. Sure, yeah. I will tell you a novel I think yeah. is going to be problematical for people next year. It's going to be that's going to be the Greg Egan first novel in a trilogy, Clockwork Clock Rocket. Rocket. Yeah, uh, which if you really really like what Greg Egan does, and what Greg Egan does is more than fiction. Um, he does equations. He does alternative sciences. He does physics. He does imaginary physics. Um, all that is brilliantly laid out in the novel. Yeah, um, I think people are going to find that a challenge as well. I think well, I think you may be right. Um, well, one book we haven't mentioned this time out, but we've mentioned in the past, of course, is Nettie's Akata Witch, which is on the Amazon list of the top ten science fiction books of the year, and probably deserves to be. It's a very good book. It's a very good book, and it's also a um, interesting um, book for her in the sense that having written two children, two young adult novels, and then writing an adult novel, which is pretty much very an adult novel, even though it has one yep. protagonist. We're returning to an area somewhere in between. This is one of those novels which, as we've mentioned before, young adult novels are going to be read largely by uh, by adult readers. Possibly. Uh, and it's, uh, it's, 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 yeah, it is. It's very compelling. Yeah. And it's, uh, it, it's, it's one of the novels which I think is fascinating. It's going on more and more in our field. Uh, and uh, it became very, very evident uh, a couple of years ago when, when Margot Lanigan you know, won the World Fantasy Award. Mm-hmm. Uh, for a novel which might have been a young adult novel and people thought, well, maybe that's too strong for a young adult novel. But I think that that barrier is being erased. It's not being erased in terms of marketing. Publishers still want to be able to sell yeah. it. But in terms of science fiction readership, I'm finding uh, between Margot Lanigan and Paolo Bacigalupi and now Nettie Okorafor that uh, adult science fiction and fantasy readers don't care if something is labeled young adult. Well, no. Oh, we should also just very quickly, and I don't want to disrail, disrail us or derail us at all, but just very quickly uh, congratulate Paolo for winning the Prince Award for Shipbreaker. Absolutely, we should. Which happened just this past weekend, so major kudos to him. I also say, would add that I think it's been a surprisingly good year for original anthologies. I wasn't sure it was going to be, but mm-hmm. there's been some really nice ones. I mean, my, my personal favorite is a YA book. It's the Gavin Grant Kelly Link steampunk anthology that's coming out in October, which is terrific. It's just a wonderful, a ma- wonderful book. Has a major Kelly Link story in it. It does, and one of two she's supposed to have out this year. Uh, but it also has a wonderful novelette by Dylan Horrocks in it, and I mean, there's a, a, a terrific novelette by Libba Bray, and there's a, I mean a handful of other great stories. So it's really, I mean, a, a very, very good book. Uh, I also liked uh, Welcome to Border Town, the Holly mm. Black Alan Kushner thing, which which has some interesting stuff, including a a quite interesting Cory Doctorow novelette. Though the problem for Cory Doctorow fans this year is whether you go with I forget the name of the story from well, Welcome to Border Town, which is all about taking the internet into a fantasy fantasy world, uh, or you take his Clockwork Fagin story from Steampunk, which is also very very good. Um, Margot Lanning, oh no, what's her name? Isabel Carmody in, uh, did an interesting anthology here in Australia called Tales of the Tower, which is I thought was excellent. And Ellen Datlow had a whole string of them. I mean, Teeth, uh, Silent Noir. Um, she, had, she has two uh, vampire anthologies out. I forget the name of the other one off the top of my head, but her stuff has been excellent. So, you know, it's it's been a good, strong year. 
Um, well, you've I've yet seen modest, sorry? Now you, you're being modest about not mentioning your own Mars anthology. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, look, I, I had Life on Mars and Engineering Infinity out, but mm -hmm. it's very, you know, there's not much I can say. Those are my books, and, you know, they are what they are. Oh, um, and I, and honestly, I can't say much about them because, as you know, I'm not one of the short fiction reviewers for Locus, so I get to see these later on. So I mean, yeah, I, I think it's it's a good year. I'm, I think we probably won't see things sort of settle out to what the best are for a little while yet. I am really interested to get some feedback on Ian McLeod's new novel, Wake Up and Dream, because mm. because he's one of those guys. I think he's an A grade writer who, unfortunately, in commercial terms, had a B grade career, and so he, having not sold as well as he might, despite being a creator of major work. Uh, he can be kind of overlooked. His novels are mostly published by small presses now. Uh, I think mostly by PS Publishing, and they're they're yeah. all terrific, great books, but they just don't get talked about as much as they could. Well, there was a, there was a period I remember when I was reading some of his early books, and uh, I think there was a short story collection from Golden Griffin, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, there was. There was one from Golden Griffin, and then another one from um, Subterranean. Yeah, and this is one of those people who looked like this is a major figure in the field. Mm. This is going to be. You know, highly visible. This is. I remember reading about the same time I was uh, reading uh, Al Reynolds, for example, mm -hmm. and, and 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 yeah, it didn't seem to happen. Um, no, I don't know why. I don't know. The other writer, which uh, who I think of somebody who's an excellent writer, who's done excellent work, uh, that at least in the states has not gained a lot of traction, is John Courtney Grimwood, mm. and he has the first of a series of. Uh, you know, of, of Renaissance historical, of, of Venetian historical novels with vampires yes. in them. Which is actually very well done. Mm -hmm. uh, he's worked the history. He's worked out the setting as well as he does. Um, in some ways, to be honest, I would just as soon see him doing what he does rather than doing something which looks like a commercial enterprise. But it's it's well executed, and um, and, and and it may be and it may be a, a very important series when it's done. Um, there's there's a part of me that thinks I don't like people doing things that look familiar when they've yeah. done other things more original. But then I think one of the um, one of the best sort of alternate history involving supernatural agents in the Renaissance novels I read was John Ford's The Dragon Waiting. Sure, sure. Possibly before anybody, everybody else was doing this, but you, you, on the one hand, you'd like them to be doing their own thing completely. On the other hand, you like them doing something really well, which uh, which may amount to a major work of theirs. Maybe, I don't know. I, I, it's the first novel of a trilogy, so I can't tell. Yeah, and I, I, and I guess I'd wind this up by because we're getting towards the end of podca the, the podcast that there's still a batch of books i'm looking forward to see later this year i mean charlie stross's new book comes out next week in fact i haven't read it rule 34 uh and i think he's always interesting andy duncan has a new collection coming out pretty soon uh theoretically i think in september if it stays on schedule mm. and i am a stone cold andy duncan fan so I'm really excited about that. There's the Tim Powers collection, which you've just reviewed, and it'll be up, coming up. We're all sitting around waiting for Neil Stevenson's Riamdi, or, or however you pronounce it, to fall into our hands. Um, there's a new Cory Doctorow thing coming along. He wrote, he's written a pirate book. He's the Ryman collection from Small Beer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I have a copy here of Richard Morgan's new book, which I'm looking forward to reading, uh, the, which is the sequel to The Steel Remains, which I really liked. So I've got that kicking about. Uh, I am, I'm going to put a little thing out into the world. Dear world, if you like me at all, I understand there must be galleys of the new Terry Pratchett book snuff out there, and my life would be better if one of them was in my office right now. So 
and and we will whine until we get one. Please, please, <laughs> Mom, can I have a copy of the new Terry Pratchett book? And there's a batch of other stuff. Um, is there anything specific, particular you're waiting for? Oh, <gasps> I know what there is. I've got it. Oh, I've got to send an email out. Oh, I've what? got to send an email out. There's a new Ian McLeod book due out before Christmas. Excellent. No, no, no. Ian McDonald. There's a new Ian, Ian McDonald, McDonald novel. Ian McDonald's Plains Runner. His first, his next novel is due out from Pyre. Hi, Lou. If you're listening to the podcast, Lou. Hi, Lou. Um, mm-hmm. And Plains Runner is due out in December. Well, so we have to get that like oh, now, like like now, oh, right now. Or original judgment that this is not 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 looking like a bad year. No, I think it's a good year. I do want to add to my, uh, the, the, the list of um, major collections by under, under-celebrated women writers, to Lucy Sussex and Caitlin Kernan. We also saw the collected stories of Carol Imschuller. Yes, which year. is terrific. A major book which everybody should have. Absolutely. I mean, just a major, major book. And Subterranean are doing a bunch more of these uh, retrospectives, which are going to be terrific. There's a big uh, Neil Barrett Jr. best of coming out. And probably one a book which will stand as one of the top five collections of the year, if they do it properly, which I'm sure they will, which is the best of Michael Bishop they're doing, who is a sp- spectacular short story writer. There's a best of Cage Baker coming along as well before Christmas, so that'll fill people's stockings. There's just a lot of great books. One thing, a phenomenon that I was interested to see as well, and this probably may, in fact, this may only have happened in my head, Gary, but... Mm. I feel like this is the year where Cat Valenti moved over from being an interesting small press writer to being potentially a major writer in the field with the publication of Deathless from Tor and with the publication of The Girl Who Circumnavigated Fairyland. I think that may be true. And she's a very intelligent and very oh, yeah. intelligent um, who's, in a sense, needed a kind of signature work. Mm. And I'm if Deathless might very well be that. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is the danger of being prolific in the small press. I mean, I feel like um, Kat Valenti and to some degree Lavi Tidhar as well. Lavi's yet to mm-hmm. produce that book yet for the rest of the scene. It may prove to be Osama that you're talking about. Um, you need to sort of show that next thing that proves that, you're, that you are a major writer to, to readers. Uh, and it's, it doesn't always happen immediately. So it's good to see it happening. It's a topic we should talk about on a future podcast. On oh, no, a future podcast, Gary, yes. A, yes. But, but when our hour is isn't up. Well, I know, our hour is up, and we could we could go on for an hour and a half, as people are well aware, and we can make few people just suffer and stay on the treadmill for another ten minutes. But They just turn it off, Gary. They just turn it off. Oh, I guess they do. So oh, they there's one last thing we should mention. One last thing. This is the last thing. Long-time listener, sometime caller, uh, Paul Cornell, friend of mm-hmm. this podcast and friend of these podcasters, now officially has his own podcast. Paul... And I, mm, yeah. Okay, this is what podcasts are good for. I find Paul utterly delightful to talk to every time I talk to him. And that's what a podcast does for you. You get a chance to more or less talk to him. So Paul's... My question, yes. my question for our future podcasts, and people can think about it between now and then, is between... Uh, the, the the number of small presses who do very good creative work between the exposure you can get on the internet between even the possibility of self-publishing something is it becoming too easy to become a cult author <laughs> I don't know is it a good thing to become a cult cult author so is it a good thing to become a cult author I don't know I don't know but just just to let people know that Paul's podcast the SF Squeecast which they can get at sfsqueecast.com is Paul with uh, I know it's squ- uh, yeah I know I know but anyway 
Uh, is it, I had to listen to it last night. It's really good. Um, it's Paul and Kat Valenti and um, Sean Ann McGuire and a couple other people. I apologize for not remembering all the names off the top of my head. Um, all talking about the, you know, things that they've really liked and works they think we should pay attention to in, in fiction and in um, movies and TV. Paul's talks about Christopher Priest, who has a new book coming out in September, Gary. Really? Yes, he does. No. A new novel. First one in some years, so... We have to get that as well. Hello, everybody at Golands. We'd really like you to send us one. So, mm. on that note, Gary, sounding mature and not at all squeeish about Christopher Priest, I'll talk to you next Squee. week. Squee. We're not squeers, Gary. No, don't squee. Paul, Paul, Paul and Kat and their group should know that at, Mon- at the Montreal World Con, there was a major button uh, being sported by mostly young women and sometimes by young men, but young men couldn't get it through their black leather jackets that said, squee, I've met Neil Gaiman or something. <laughs> yeah, look, if we can't do sort of two thumbs up or five gold stars, we certainly can't squee. No, we're not going to do thumbs up. We're not going to squee. We're not going to do that. We're just going to be We'll just like each other on Facebook, right? Exactly, right. <laughs> on that happy note, I'll talk to you next week. I'll talk to you next week. Take care. Bye.